Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Unequal Podcast. A couple of weeks back, we saw the release of the Global Hunger Index report. It made for alarming reading as levels of hunger have increased across the world. Today, we focus on India, whose government did not take kindly to India's extremely poor standing in the index. It has dismissed the report itself and suggested that the global report constituted an attempt to taint India's image. India was ranked 107th out of 121 countries, even below some countries whose per capita incomes are lower than India's. It is no secret that even today malnutrition is one of the most serious problems that India faces. The Indian government's own data shows that 40% of India's children face chronic undernourishment. To understand the issue better, I will be speaking to Deepa Sinha. who is an associate professor of economics at the Dr B R Ambedkar University in Delhi and is one of India's leading experts on the issue of malnutrition welcome deepa let's start by jumping right into it what do you think of the indian government's criticism of the global hunger index or more specifically india's ranking in the index see i think uh, it's good that you asked this question in these two parts because it's important that we separate these two parts first the indian government's criticism uh, into the index if we go into the technicalities of it there are some things which you can have a debate about and there are some things which are not valid so their main criticism has been around three issues first that this is not an index of hunger but it's an index of malnutrition and within that particularly focused on young children and therefore it cannot reflect the entire population so that i think is not really uh, valid so much anymore Uh, because uh, now globally it has been understood and even the fao fao definition of food security for instance says that it is a uh, food which is of good quality and required for the nutrition of the human being and also that child malnutrition reflects uh, the overall health and well-being of uh, of a country is also well understood of course if you go like technically by the literal meaning of hunger then it is much narrower but i think that is really an issue um, that has been debated for long and one should not focus on it too much the other that it is based on this uh, gallup world poll on uh, food uh, insecurity experience scale again is not entirely true because what it is based on is the fao's proportion of undernourished in which a number of variables go in into that model to come up with that figure one of which is from this uh, poll also that fao regularly brings it out when fao brings out that number the government of india has not making such a big you know re- releasing this official and, uh, and some of the some of the variables that go into the fao number come from the indian government absolutely the numbers related to production and uh, trade and all of that come from indian government even this one number related to the distribution of uh, i mean they have to use some distribution data on how the available food is distributed would have come from the indian government if our nss surveys were conducted regularly because we don't have a consumption expenditure after 2011 they use this to update the distribution but i think the more important part is your second question on the ranking of where india stands in this uh, without going too much into the technicalities of what exactly this represents whether one calls it hunger or malnutrition or food security what is clear that based on certain indicators which are definitely important child malnutrition child mortality overall food security and the same methodology is used for all countries year after year we perform poorly compared to other countries in our neighborhood 
and in uh, who are like india in terms of their per capita incomes i think that is what the focus should be on and taking on from there saying that we need to therefore pay greater attention to these things try and understand them better and there we can say okay these are not the indicators we want to use we will use another set and see what is going on i think that would have been a more appropriate response than to deny uh, going into these technicalities then it's a denial of the issue as well whereas it is not wrong that there is a lot of hunger and food insecurity in the country that malnutrition is a big problem these are not uh, wrong and they are validated by many other kinds of data and you mentioned how india is ranked uh, lower than some of its neighbors and also ranked lower than many countries which are much poorer on a per capita basis than india so how how is that possible if a country is poorer in terms of per capita income how are these indicators better in those countries than in india absolutely so this is the question we should actually be asking why is it that india ranks lower than countries which are poorer not just in this index if we just look at stunting as an individual indicator which is not such a controversial indicator india ranks poorer why is it that or in wasting why is it that our children are more malnourished than you would expect them to be given our income levels is the question to be asked and here it's a complicated issue there's not one answer firstly we also have to accept that this is not something new so it's not this government versus previous government and so on that from the time we've been measuring child malnutrition at a nationally representative scale we've been saying that it's very high and it's reducing at a slow pace there is a lot written into why this difference happens i'll just quickly say three factors i think are important number one is women's status which directly and indirectly affects malnutrition outcomes number two is open defecation and sanitation which again has a direct link to malnutrition number 3 i think on which we don't have enough data is to do with dietary diversity so not just about whether people are eating anything at all or not but what is it that people are eating and what is the nutritious value nutrient value of what people are eating is that enough to address micro and macro uh, nutrients you see that indian diets are poor so we need to look at why are the diets poor is it because they are not affordable is it because uh, they are not available or is it because people don't know what to eat so um i'll ask you to break down if you can each of these uh, a little bit to explain a little bit of these two but also just to understand the indicators what wasting and stunting actually mean okay uh, so stunting is seen to be a chronic an indicator of chronic malnutrition it is telling you the proportion of children whose height for age is less than what is expected of a child of that age the reference standards are given by the who based on a multi country uh, growth uh, survey that they did and this is now universally accepted as being the growth standards so you look at the distribution of children compared to that reference group and children who are more than two standard deviations away are con- considered to be stunted wasting similarly is a it is an indicator of acute malnutrition so it looks at weight for height so wasting normally you would say indicates more recent episodes like say a child falling ill or an economic shock these things are expected to be shown immediately in the wasting figures stunting on the other hand because it's to do with heights is related to multiple factors most immediate being uh, food and uh, infections or disease but those have underlying factors like women's status overall livelihoods families economic status and so on 
so in, so in a sense stunting is a more long term outcome of prolonged malnourishment and the implication of other factors that you mentioned correct yeah yeah which is why for like national level programming often stunting is the main indicator that is looked at and uh, what are some of the adverse outcomes that these two indicators can lead to so like having india has as much as 40% of uh, children who are stunted or wasted and that's a huge number right so what yeah. are the out- outcomes of these what what is it that the children suffer from as a result of these yeah so um, i'll just combine the two although if you go into it uh, there are slight differences but mainly uh, starting with the economic arguments for why stunting is important there are a lot of studies which have done intergenerational or long term studies which have found that uh, children who are stunted uh, grow up do not grow to their potential in terms of their mental and physical growth and therefore the long term productivity is affected life expectancy is affected their immunity to uh, various diseases is affected so their ability to work ability to attain the potential that they could have had they received the right nutrition this is affected so over a long term this also affects uh, your say gdp and indicators like that because it really affects the productivity of the workforce so now coming to uh, some of the reasons for why this is happening as you mentioned uh, women status uh what bearing does that have how can that lead to this situation how can a poor status of women in a household lead lead to these situations yeah uh, so poor status of women can lead to uh, causes malnutrition in a number of ways one is just the direct intergenerational effect because uh, if the mother is malnourished the mother is anemic then the likelihood that the child who is born is uh, stunted and is anemic is much higher so if the pregnant woman Uh, the mother is not a healthy well nourished mother then she doesn't have a very healthy pregnancy and the child is malnourished and that cycle sort of continues the second is also to do more with uh, gender and uh, patriarchy where in most of these countries and particularly in india the ch- the responsibility of child care is primarily on the woman so if her status is low within the household and in the community then her decision making is low her issues are given lower priority in politics and so on because of which children don't get appropriate care and feeding practices for instance in india there are no creches there is no maternity entitlements uh, there is no women's work is not recognized and therefore the fact that they don't have time to actually take care of children that they need help and support in it is not recognized so the various things that need to go into having a healthy child uh, of course food is most important but you also need somebody to take care of the child feed that child ensure there is a hygienic environment and that entire burden falls on women whose status is low and that then affects uh, the kind of nutrition outcomes there are and the sec- the second reason that you mentioned was uh, open defecation in india so uh, one question is exactly how does that impact uh, these situation how does that impact mal- malnutrition and the second is isn't india open defecation free uh on the first question first how does it uh, impact malnutrition um the again open defecation basically directly affects your disease environment so if there is open defecation then there is more gastrointestinal diseases so the absorption of nutrition is lower and also things like diarrhea and so on is higher because of which the nutrition outcomes of the child or the adult is poorer on the second part of the question the um is india 
uh, open defecation free while many states and uh, uh, villages and panchayats have been declared open defecation uh, free uh, even the data doesn't show it it is true that uh, sanitation in terms of the number of toilets being built has increased uh, over time uh, but at the same time you also find that uh, even if you go by the nfhs5 for instance almost a quarter of the households are still practicing open defecation and nfhs5 collects this data at the household level there are a lot of micro studies which show that even when a toilet is constructed in a household not all members of the household are using the toilet right so open defecation affects in so many ways it's the disease environment and therefore even if one particular household is using a toilet but all the neighbors are not even that would affect what is going on uh, so i think there is still a long way to go to uh, address that issue although the trend is towards improvement but again another thing where the speed is lower than our neighbors and also uh, we are, i don't think we are close to open defecation free the latest nfhs 5 also doesn't say that we have achieved 100% uh, toilet usage so why is that like you mentioned that the speed of change in india is lower than neighbors like pakistan and bangladesh uh, but why is that is there something uh, inherently cultural about india that makes open defecation a peculiar problem for india one thing so i am not an expert on bangladesh and uh, pakistan but i definitely uh, one thing we can say about india and a lot of people have uh, written about this and are looking at this is the whole caste system and uh, the, and its relation to uh, open defecation or use of toilets in the country the whole idea of purity uh, that people don't clean their own toilets uh, as simple as that and that you consider it below you to clean your own toilets and that only some cars do it it definitely has a linkage to this whole uh, issue of usage uh, and that is not really addressed manual scavenging for example is still practiced in india despite it being banned so that is the extreme form uh, but it really it's therefore like that you cannot have a toilet within the household or who cleans it who uses it uh, these are if you call it cultural factors which india does have and you also see that it's different in different parts of the country for instance many regions in the northeast toilet usage is much higher so uh, there is i think uh, the role that caste plays is something that we must take into account so because one would not want to clean the toilet what would not one would not want the hassle of cleaning the toilet one would not want the toilet itself yeah that's putting it very simplistically but yes so there are biases on uh, so, so therefore unless it's a i mean particularly in rural areas where you do not have um, water supply and drainage of that sort you you do need to have other sorts of toilets which is not just a flush uh, toilet right and there these issues come in and the third reason that you mentioned for malnutrition is the diets and uh, <clears throat> this is something that i'm uh, particularly interested especially in the recent times how is it that the indian diets uh, contribute to malnutrition and uh, has that changed over the years yeah i think this one is actually in some ways the most uh, difficult one because data is uh, very sparse when you look at diets in india we used to have the main source of data was uh, the nss consumption expenditure survey which also had its limitations because it's a household level survey so we don't really know within the household who is eating how much of which food uh, which did show a declining calorie consumption but uh, it has its own limitations there used to be national nutrition monitoring bureau which used to do these surveys in 10 states which has stopped 
So what we know is from, again, field experiences, micro studies, uh, also the uh, comprehensive national nutrition survey, which was done one round by UNICEF and government of India, which the full data has not come out of. But from all of these, we know that Indian diets are uh, heavily cereal uh, based and that other things, particularly protein and uh, various micronutrients are much below what is required. And this obviously would have a uh, have an impact on the outcomes, particularly say anemia, uh, where you see between NFHS 4 and NFHS 5 anemia increasing in India. Uh, clearly, the, it has something to do with diets as well in terms of diet quality, the diversity in which people are eating. So in various things, you look at fruits, vegetables, eggs, meat, uh, the consumption of this is uh, quite low in, in Indian diets, which from whatever sparse uh, data sources we have that we can see. Uh, why it is, then each of this you have to go into. One big reason is also affordability. And, and you mentioned um, cereals. So this, this would primarily be wheat and rice, which are predominantly consumed? Yes. So post Green Revolution, post the PDS, we have seen that shift also happen. Uh, where uh, people have moved away from more local grains and millets and uh, towards wheat and uh, rice, which had, where the PDS has had a big role to play on why uh, that is so. Uh, and so there, this, wasn't, this wasn't always the case? No. So th th there was greater diversity in the cereals that people consumed, uh, particularly the millets that are different millets in different parts of the country. And these are have higher, more concentration in various micronutrients than rice and wheat are. Also that you're eating milled rice, more polished. So you're losing a lot of nutrients because they're more processed in what is currently being used. But after the Green Revolution, uh, these millets were somehow less fashionable. Now they are back in fashion as superfoods. Now they're back in fashion, unfortunately, as superfoods, which makes it affordable only to a few. Uh, but for people for whom it was their main uh, staple, uh, the entire cropping patterns have changed in many parts of the country. And also that the public distribution system gave rice and wheat at subsidized prices. People moved to that. There was also an aspirational aspect to it where you saw that those who are better off were eating white rice and eating uh, flour. Uh, polished uh, polished rice, the most shiny it could be, right? Absolutely. And now the rich have realized that that was not the best thing. So there is a reversal <laughs> happening there. Uh, but I guess it will take another 30 years for it to be accessible for everybody and to go back uh, for the poor as well. Yeah, I remember that when I was studying undergraduate economics, uh, one of the examples of inferior goods was jawar and bajra. Exactly. As your incomes increase, you move away from these things. Absolutely. So there is that aspect still. So it is, uh, yeah, considered an inferior good, um, and that also has an effect. So, uh, so on the on the question of diets, uh, how how is it that we can fix this at a national level? I think there is no simple uh, single point agenda, Kabir. I think first, for, for me, the very first thing would be to recognize that this is a problem and to recognize that this is not a problem only of behaviors. So it's not as if it's completely out of the policy uh, frameworks, particularly to do with young children and infant and young child feeding. You see that like the National Nutrition Mission, the Poshan Abhiyan, does talk about appropriate feeding practices and having uh, diverse meals. But uh, almost all of the problem is laid in the hands of behavior change, that people basically don't know what to feed their children and therefore they're not feeding. 
I think that is a very limited view. While there are certain things where yes, uh, awareness and knowledge needs to be increased. It's not just about the child's diet. It's about the entire household and what they're eating. And there, many other things come in. Things like affordability, things like accessibility, things like uh, storage, supply chains, all of this. So there are, for example, fruits and vegetables. If you look at the National Family Health Survey data, it shows that uh, the regularity with which people eat uh, fruits, for instance, is much more in urban areas than in rural areas. Whereas you would expect it to be reversed because you expect that in rural areas it's available. But we have to recognize that most of the food is it's now commercialized. People are accessing uh, more and more of their foods through the market. And therefore, one has to really look at the entire food system on what are the things that are grown in India? What are the things that used to be grown that are not grown now? How do we bring them back? Uh, fruits and vegetables, how do you en ensure storage? How do you ensure healthy kinds of processing where people can keep them? Uh, livestock policy. Once we get into dietary diversity, it's a, it's all of this that you have to look at, the food systems that uh, people are talking about now. So one of the things that the Indian government has proposed, although I'm not entirely sure that whether it's been motivated by this, is that <clears throat> declaring to 2023 as the year of millets. Hmm. which has its other benefits in terms of uh, being more um, um, more resilient to droughts, etc., requiring less water. Hmm. But also, they are more nutrient. So could that be one step in the direction of uh, solving that problem? Uh, definitely. That at least some attention is being paid to the issue. But I think we need to also see what does it mean, uh, not just that in government offices and colleges you have one day where millet is served, which is also good. But I think one needs to also see how this can actually be incorporated into public programs because India runs very huge direct feeding and food distribution programs. Millets and pulses and oils, these crops need to be integrated in them. So if you ensure that the school midday meals, that the... Uh, preschool meals through the ICDS, the public distribution system. If these also include millets, then you are, government is procuring them, assuring a price to the farmers, farmers will produce more. So you address the entire cycle. Uh, so I hope some concrete things like this are also done. Also on the issue of diets, uh, I think there was a survey last week or the week before that, <clears throat> which was about uh, what, uh, what in terms of processed foods. Uh, people in rural India were consuming and I was uh, the question was that uh, which of these did you consume in the last one week and the highest percentage was for chips or things like kurkure yeah. and even even more than paldeji so 90% yeah. of the people in the last week had consumed chips in yeah. addition to paldeji or white bread slices etc Hmm. So even even this is a massive massive problem. Why is it that um, that people are consuming more of in terms of processed food than um, other foods? I think here also again one part of it is awareness, which is what most uh, people and governments tend to focus on. But we also have to look at what is called the food environment. What is it that is available for people conveniently and affordable prices? These are the foods. Yeah, it's cheaper to buy kurkure or maggi than to buy a fruit every day, say for your child. Or say in urban areas, you have, uh, we have seen that, say, even domestic workers, women where they are working in four or five houses, they don't have the time to cook. It is five rupees to buy a packet of maggi, which takes two minutes to be made. What is the alternative available like that, which takes so little time and can be available in that little price? 
that is not really there. Healthy alternatives are not available. So along with uh, uh, awareness building, one really needs to see what is the availability of affordable healthy foods. And there, of course, I think there is a big gap. Whereas on the other hand, uh, all these ultra-processed foods have a huge backing of advertising behind them. Uh, market, uh, the, the whole, uh, they, they, re they reach the remotest of uh, villages. They have figured out this whole bottom of the pyramid, selling it in smaller packets uh, so that people are able to buy. And I think this is an epidemic that we are looking at where you have on the one side, undernourished people consuming ultra-processed food. So you have stunted people at the same time consuming these, which has been linked to the whole issue of non-communicable diseases, increasing hypertension and diabetes is not a problem only of the rich in our country. And Correct. that again has to do with diets. So which is why we have uh, malnutrition going together with obesity. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, so looking back, um, since independence, I'm sure India has come a long way. Uh, these All these issues were much worse uh, at the time of independence. So how do you see progress since independence? And has there been a reversal in the last few years? So first things, uh, correct, I'm not saying nothing has happened over the last 75 years or uh, that we are where we were. That would be wrong to say. Uh, we have to acknowledge that at the time of independence, India was very recently had experienced huge famines, uh, large number of starvation deaths, and there was that kind of acute hunger that was present. And I would say that to a large extent that has been uh, addressed. We don't see a famine or large, you know, uh, large number of starvation deaths and so on, although there are still uh, once in a while deaths that do happen in particularly marginalized communities amongst Adivasis and so on. But I would say that that sort of acute hunger is something that has been uh, addressed. On the other hand, when we look at malnutrition, which is reflected by these sort of indicators like anemia or stunting or so on, stunting particularly or wasting, while there has been some improvement, it's been really slow. We have data from the early 90s, which is co comparable. And you see that uh, it, it used to be one in two children. Now it is one in three children, but it's still very, very high and very slow sort of uh, improvement. And there, I think, is where the sort of gaps are that we have uh, addressed the visible acute hunger, but the more invisible, slow sort of malnutrition, which people might not recognize many times. No, If a child is growing, but is growing uh, tall at a smaller pace, often in communities, you don't even recognize that there is a problem. That is what we are, uh, we need to now focus on. And is the, is the trend looking good? It has Is progress, I mean, you said that the progress is slow, but is the progress at least consistent? Uh, even the consistency, there's a bit of a question on that. Uh, so the main source of data from which we get uh, data on uh, child malnutrition is these National Family Health Surveys. So there was a round in 2005-06 and then 15-16 and then the most recent 1921, which has just been uh, released. Between 5-6 and 15-16, we see a 10 percentage point decline in stunting, uh, which although not uh, like something to not very great is still okay because compared to the previous period, there was sort of a acceleration in how we were improving. But if we look at the two most recent rounds, that is the period between 2016 and 20, uh, there is an improvement in stunting. Wasting is the same. Anemia has become worse. 
and we have to still understand what is going on. But if we triangulate it with other sorts of data that these are four years where there has been an economic slowdown as well, where wages have been stagnant, uh, you do feel that probably the speed of decline has once again sort of halted. And this time also a, a, a reason for concern is that if you look at state-wise figures, for the first time you find that in many states, uh, the situation has actually worsened between two surveys. And that is something also that we really need to look into and understand what is going on. So uh, what are some of the reasons that that could have happened? Why, I mean, despite economic progress, why are these things become worse? I think this is where uh, now I am uh, just saying based on what, on, on a basic kind of superficial understanding how I look at it. Uh, that if you see the states where it has worsened and not, like we have discussed, there are so many factors that go into malnutrition. And it's a combination of all of that that you see the final outcome. So these five, six year period, you definitely have seen, for instance, an improvement in uh, access to clean drinking water, to sanitation and so on. At the same time, you have seen economic distress. So it's a combination of these two. States which had a low base, I think, improved because these other things improved, whereas states where sanitation and these things were already sort of at a higher level, it's the economic distress which plays a bigger uh, role. So we have to look at these things in combination. We have not, not just, and I'm not talking only about COVID when I say economic distress, I'm talking about post, say, around 2016, where we do see so that... demonetization post-demonetization by the time and there are other sort of studies which are saying that demonetization did have a sort of lasting impact on the informal sector and the economy and probably that has affected also the kind of nutrition outcomes that we have had because it definitely affects the food security in the household if wages are stagnant if unemployment is growing then that also affects what it is that people are able to eat so now I want you to speak a little bit about the, uh, India's uh, food distribution program. So India has the world's, perhaps the world's largest uh, program of food distribution, which reaches 800 million people. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So that's a huge, huge number. Mm-hmm. And in the last, uh, since COVID, in, uh, the government of India has also been distributing additional grain, which is free mm-hmm. uh, for, for the moment. It's still ongoing. So the fact that it is still ongoing reflects that the government knows that there is a problem which is severe and we need to reach 800 million people, which is more than 50% of India's population. Yeah. So what is it? And to, to the PDS's credit, some people have even said that a large-scale famine-like situation was averted in India uh, during COVID, which is what the fear was uh, when COVID began, that right. there are no... Uh, incomes will be wiped out, etc. People will not have enough to eat. And some people have said that the fact that we did not see too many starvation deaths, we did see hunger but not starvation, was mm-hmm. in large part due to the public distribution system. So <clears throat> can you explain the public distribution system a little bit uh, in, in this context? Yeah. So I'll start off from where you left. And I completely agree with this view that the public distribution system, I think, has... Uh, made a quite a significant contribution through the period of COVID. And I think that is how we have to look at it. That had it not been there, things would have been much, much, uh, probably much worse. Uh, so like you said, it covers about 800 million population, which is about 60% uh, of uh, India's current population. Um, and it, But it gives only uh, cereals. And within cereals, only rice and wheat. 
what it did as a COVID measure was to give additional five kgs per head for free. But so, uh, but there have been a number of gaps as well. There's much more that could have been done through the public distribution system. Number one is, uh, while it is true that it's very large and has such a wide coverage, we still have people who were in need who were excluded from the uh, distribution system because they did not have the ration cards which would make them eligible to get the grades. One way in which this could have been addressed was to just, because this is governed by the National Food Security Act on how many people need to be covered. Currently, the 2011 census population is used, but if we updated the population figures to 2020 or 2021, there would be another um, 100 million people almost who would have been uh, included. The second issue in the PDS is, uh, like we said, it's only rice and wheat, whereas including other items in this, at least pulses and oil, which was given for just a couple of months, could have also helped with this issue of uh, broadening the food basket that people have access to. Uh, this is an implicit income transfer, at least the cereals were guaranteed for the houses that got it, uh, but that was not enough. At the same time, we must recognize that even if that was also not there, we don't know what the situation would have been. We would have seen maybe much worse uh, conditions. That is going on till December, uh, but the crisis I don't think is entirely over. So we'll have to see what happens after December. Yeah, did you mention the crisis isn't entirely over, and in in some ways it, it's getting worse because this year India has seen that um, the the crop the yields of both wheat and rice have gone down, and now there are some talks that India may have to import wheat, which hasn't happened for many years. Uh, India hasn't had to import wheat, so uh, there are talks now that this additional grain, India cannot continue beyond uh, December. Uh, so, uh, can you talk a little bit about the immediate crisis of hunger that we see, which is ongoing since the pandemic due to the mm -hmm. declining incomes, unemployment, and now also because of a reduction in the stock of uh, cereals, even cereals, uh, cereal inflation is yeah. also about 10 or 12% right yeah. now. This mm -hmm. hasn't happened in a long time. So, so even the cereals, which too much of is bad for us, but but even those are now, uh, is there now a situation that even those might not be affordable to a large proportion of the population? So I think we are at that cusp of whether it will become a crisis or not, like I was saying. Right now, because this there has been an extension in this COVID relief, I think still, at least people who have ration cards till December, the 10 kgs per head is actually enough it meets almost the entire serial requirements of the household. And so the inflation in the market probably is not directly affecting uh, the family budgets as much. But like you said, there is a concern on whether this will continue both because the government has repeatedly been saying that uh, this is too expensive and the fiscal burden is too much, but also because there is this pressure on food stocks currently. So if we look at this throughout COVID, through most period of COVID, we had over 90 to 100 million tons of food grain stocks in the uh, public uh, stockholding. But in the recent months after the season of wheat, where the wheat crop reduced and procurement reduced by uh, more than half, we do see that the stocks have depleted quite fast. Uh, from what we're hearing so far, paddy uh, uh, production this time also, the yields are low. So we don't know if rice will make up for the uh, gap in the wheat. Um, and therefore, we'll have to see what happens. But here, like you said, I think it was 2008 that we last imported wheat. 
um and it was australian wheat people didn't like it it was a huge political issue and then if you remember the msp the minimum support price of wheat had increased quite a bit and then wheat procurement was back in place um the only good news here seems to be that the next season would be better uh, that the next year's wheat crop will will it seems like will be good i think a lot depends on how the government now plans because with with uh, the 2022 crop we really messed up one day you had a minister announcing uh, that india would feed the world and the next day you had the announcement that we could not export at all and that there would be a ban hopefully we don't do that we really need to plan knowing that there could be a crisis then maybe we'll be able to uh, avert it but if we just wait and watch i am uh, i don't know what will uh, happen but there this is an issue of concern because the production has indeed gone down the market prices of cereals have gone up and therefore procurement also depends on how government's prices are competitive vis-a-vis the market prices so it, it, there could be a situation where india has to import wheat right now it seems like that but we don't know i think again like i said it really depends also on the paddy output because if that compensates enough then maybe uh, it could be averted and next year's wheat output and so i think stepping up procurement operations uh, would really help and this is the time where i would say it might seem impractical where you again widen the basket like we should use this as an opportunity to increase procurement of millets increase procurement of other crops and include them in the public distribution system and in in a ways um, move towards solving the long term pro- problem as well correct i think one we are always responding to immediate crisis but having a longer term view and a food systems view is really something that is uh, needed and hopefully this crisis will drive us towards that because this crisis is telling us about climate change impact about the need for better nutrition uh, everything right and farmers incomes and people's affordability so we should look at all this together Well, so uh, to end with, I just want to ask you about uh, some of the Indian government's plans to deal with the problem of uh, hunger and malnutrition in India. And like, the Prime Minister has spoken about malnutrition and how we need to eradicate it. So, what is the government of India doing? What do you make of those programs or schemes? The government of India, if you look at actually the programs that it's running to address the problem of malnutrition, I would say based on their speeches and where the money uh, is allocated, there are two main um, programs that it's running. The num- first one, which the Prime Minister also has mentioned multiple times, is the mandatory fortification of rice um, with iron, which they hope will address anemia, over which there is a lot of controversy both in terms of acceptance. Uh, of those uh, fortified rice by people and also uh, whether really it has that kind of health benefit that it is supposed to have and the negative benefit it has for some populations like those who have thalassemia and sickle cell anemia and so on everybody is being given this fortified rice and there are concerns over that but that seems to be one big push uh, the other is uh, what is called the portion abhiyan where uh, which is more directly focused on young children where again Uh, the focus is on fortification micronutrient supplementation and behavior change i think in both of these it's a very narrow limited view that the government is taking whereas what is required is a more uh, broader food system approach that we just discussed uh, along with making diets uh, more diverse and affordable and then looking at the other uh, determinants like women's empowerment sanitation and all of that that is really not coming out on the ground as much 
So what is it that, uh, I mean, there has been a lot of talk about this uh, mobile application which the government has created. Yeah, so under the uh, Potion Abhiyan, uh, so far the budgets have been mainly spent on two things. One is on the campaigns, on the public campaigns, so the ICT, and the other is these mobile phones that Anganwadi workers have been given. They are the those who are in charge of the uh, preschool, early childhood centers. So I mean, I have nothing against mobile phones, but that is not at all enough. It's only it is supposed to reduce the burden of these workers and have a better monitoring of what is happening. But you find that the back end is really missing. Even if the workers are entering data on malnutrition on those apps, who is looking at it, who is analyzing it, and how is program being uh, affected by what the data is showing? Is the data true? I haven't seen very much analysis in those lines. And secondly, monitoring is one thing. But when you monitor and you find a problem, what are you going to do to solve it? That part is missing. So what is the point in having just the mobile phones? I think the idea was that it, this would make real-time data available to the workers and also to researchers. But has that been made available? No. So the workers, of course, have always had real-time data, whether it was uh, through the mobile app or their registers, because they are the ones collecting the data. As far as researchers go, none of this data is public. If you, uh, It's not on the public domain. Uh, it would really help to have at least, you know, it doesn't have to be unit level data where the children and the families can be identified, but at block level and district level, if it's put out, that also sort of puts pressure on the data quality and people can independently verify how it is going. That is not available. Even within the government, one has not seen higher levels of administration using this data to um, modify their programs. At least there's nothing in the public domain which tells us that it's being used in that manner. So is this also a case of misplaced uh, techno-optimism? I would say so. I think the problem with techno-optimism or whatever you call it is that technology in itself is never a solution to any of these social problems. It can aid uh, in doing certain things better if it's used properly. But if you just think that an app would solve a problem on the ground, not just in malnutrition, nothing would it do. And that has been a problem here also. A lot of money has been spent on it, which is great because it would reduce... Uh, the workload on the workers on the ground, but uh, it really has to be used as well, for which you need supervisory staff, you need them to be trained. We see that all of that is absent. Okay. Thanks a lot, uh, Deepa, for taking out time and for talking to me. Uh, This was really helpful, helps uh, me understand a lot of things better. I'm sure people who are listening also would also have understood a lot of the issues that India is facing with regards to malnutrition and hunger. Uh, Thanks for taking time out and thanks also for the great work uh, that you have been doing. Thank you. Thanks.